Bring It On is a public affairs program exploring the people, issues, and events affecting the African-American communities in South Central Indiana and beyond. Bring It On is a forum for the people, by the people, produced by an independent team of volunteers working at the studios of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana, and financially supported by listeners like you. Welcome to Bring It On, a multiple award-winning program, and for more than 12 years, we remain Indiana's only weekly community radio show committed to exploring the people, issues, and events impacting the African-American community. And good evening. I'm Cornelius Wright. Today, you'll also hear from Joyce Rogers, Vice President for Development and External Relations for IU's Diversity, Equity, and Multicultural Affairs. She's coming on to raise awareness on Black Philanthropy Month. All in the next hour on Bring It On. But before we go into that, in a recent New York Times opinion editorial by Eric Foner, he states that President Donald Trump recently lamented that the removal of Confederate statues tears apart the history and culture of our great country. When Mr. Trump identifies statues commemorating Confederate leaders as essential parts of our history and culture, he is honoring that dark period. Like all monuments, these statues say a lot more about the time they were erected than the historical era they evoke. The great waves of Confederate monument building took place in the 1890s as the Confederacy was coming to be idealized as the so-called lost cause and the Jim Crow system was being fastened upon the South. And in the 1920s, the height of black disenfranchisement, segregation and lynching. The statues were part of the legitimation of this racist regime and of an exclusionary definition of America. We've invited Bring It On contributor and anchor Amrita Myers, who is a Ruth N. Halls Associate Professor in the IU Department of History and Gender Studies to share her perspective on the history and heated debates surrounding these Confederate monuments. Amrita, are you there? I certainly am. Well, welcome back to Bring It On. Welcome, Amrita. Yes. We miss you, and it's good to hear from you. Indeed. It is great to be back on. Yeah, I've been following you on Facebook, and I think you're enjoying Atlanta a little bit too much. <laughs> um, I've definitely been settling in and uh, exploring the city. Uh, it's um, It's been really great. It's hard to believe I've been here seven weeks today. It's been flying by. Yeah, William and I were kind of talking. We said, um, we wonder if she's going to be putting her house up for sale. Is she coming back? <laughs> Everyone keeps saying that to me. I'm like, look, I'm just here for a year. I got to write this book. I think she's going to leave be, it up I'll to be the... back there soon enough. You'll be wishing, oh man, I wish you'd stayed away. <laughs> <laughs> she's going to leave it up to the dog, Cornelius. All right. Anyhow, um, Dr. Myers, so we're going to talk about the history and the legacy of Confederate statues. So let's try and take it back to the beginning and then I'll, I'll, I'll let you take it over. But my question is. Um, I have read uh, that there are anywhere from 700 to 1,000 different monuments and statues erected in honor of Confederate uh, soldiers and, and Confederate leaders. Now, no other country honors the losers uh, like we do. I mean, Hitler banned the swastika. It's, it's even illegal to give that ridiculous uh, uh, salute. high sign or yes. that salute that they do. So why is it that this country... Um, has somehow gotten to the point where, where we honor people who are actually traitors in history. Mm, 
you've you've really taken some of what I was already planning to say right right from my from my mouth and my and my mind. Um, I think that part of the the issue that we have going on here is um, this battle over history and memory. Right. Um, you're absolutely right that no other country uh, honors the losers. I had been thinking to myself. What would it be like to be in a South Africa surrounded by monuments to apartheid, um, or in Russia to monuments of the death camps of Stalin? Uh, when you go to Germany and Poland, there are absolutely um, concentration camps that you can go visit, but they're not memorials glorifying the Nazis. They are extremely solemn structures that are supposed to make you you know, realize that we can never let something like this happen again. So it's not glorifying the Nazis, it's commemorating the six million Jewish dead um, during, during the Holocaust. So I think that this battle over, over history and memory, and, and honestly, I think also the, the problems that we keep having with issues over how people interpret the First Amendment is really what we have going on in, in this country. It's, um, I think that there is a way, I mean, I'm a historian. Right, and I'm a historian of the 19th century, of slavery, of black women, of the South. This is what I do, and I mean, as a historian, I would be the first person to say that we can't erase our history, because the danger therein lies that we will not remember it and we will repeat it. Although, sadly, it seems like that's happening anyway in some ways. But I think that there is a way to do this without honoring or glorifying racism or hatred or the confederacy because as you said that's actually honoring treason and traitors so how do how do we do this so i mean i think that there are a few different things that we could possibly do um, for example if you go to louisville kentucky they've been having a pretty raging debate over a confederate war monument that is literally was smacked up in the heart of university of louisville's campus and people there led the charge to have that monument removed from U of L's campus because it was a daily um, slap in the face of African American students and faculty and staff and citizens of Louisville who were black who were really offended, um, and as as people said, Kentucky was supposed to be a quote unquote neutral state, but it was we you know a slave state. That memorial has been removed from U of L's property where it has stood since the 1890s. Um, as you said, that's when most of these were erected. You know as Plessy versus Ferguson was heating up. Segregation was becoming the law of the land. Now, no one said to destroy the monument. What it was, what was done to it, is that it was taken to a Confederate graveyard, a Confederate cemetery, and re-erected there. As far as I know, so there, there are things that can be done, right? That things can be moved to appropriate places. You could also um, erect new memorials and new monuments honoring those who died as a result of slavery and American genocide, right? You could have anti-lynching memorials. Um, you could have memorials that are dedicated to honoring abolitionists, underground railroad workers. You could have memorials to people like Harriet Tubman, Sojourner Truth, and Ida B. Wells, instead of memorials to people like Nathan Bedford Forrest, who still has several parks and monuments named for him in Memphis, which is a you know, very, very heavily African-American city, and it's incredibly offensive. For those who don't know, Nathan Bedford Forrest was not only a Confederate um, officer, he was the founder of the original Ku Klux Klan. So can you imagine, in a, in a city as black as Memphis, to have all of these monuments and parks dedicated to a man who created an institution, an organization dedicated to wiping out Catholics, Jews, African-Americans, 
anybody, really. <laughs> Catholics, let's not forget them. So, I mean, we, I think that we can replace some of these uh, memorials. I think we can move some of them to more appropriate locations. We could certainly also take them to museums, where they could then be interpreted with proper explanatory documents explaining when they were created and for what purpose, and, and what, you know, in order to make sure that we understand you know, the history that we've come out of and how to not relive that sort of legacy. Now, I think there's many things that we can do. You, you mentioned museums, and, and that's one of the things when I've spoken mm-hmm. to people that, you know, they, and even President Trump, as he mentioned, that this is going to take away a part of our history and our, our culture. To me, it seems that it's just the obvious place for these would be a museum, it's, and exactly like you stated. You mentioned some of the other statues that could be erected, and, and, and as I got to thinking, the one thing that's a true fact is all men are fallible. So in my mind, I'm trying to think, should we even erect monuments for any man, period, or should everything be put in a museum in a historical context? Well, I think that public monuments and memorials can educate. If you go to Washington, D.C., I think the Vietnam Memorial is a beautiful example of that. It's not that it's a monument to any one person, but it's a beautiful symbol with all of the names of the dead and the missing. I agree, and I was speaking of personal monuments. But, I mean, I think that there's a way to create memorials as opposed to monuments, and I think there's a difference between the two, and you're right. I think that we have to be really careful what we choose to build because it suggests that that's what we are honoring. Are we honoring treason? Are we honoring hatred? Are we honoring that? That's why, to me, when people talk about the battle flag of the Confederacy and that it's heritage, not hate, I'm very quick to correct them that it's actually a heritage of hate because that flag was not brought back out and resurrected until the ninth, until after the 1954 Brown versus Board decision went, you know, in favor of desegregation. As the civil rights movement heated up, that flag was brought out in order to terrorize, intimidate, you know, African American people who were fighting for their rights. So I think that we have to be really, really careful. Do we, you know, do we take everything down? No, but I think museums are where most of these things belong. I think confederate graveyards you could put things in but i would love to see us actually do a better job of putting up memorials to honor you know to honor the dead and to and to remember sort of you know the legacy that we've been left i mean why not more memorials to amistad right that we like we have in new haven and and fewer to men like jefferson like you said all men are fallible how about more statutes to women like Sally Hemings and less to Jefferson, right? That, that we need to see both sides of the story, that if we're going to be really fair about this. Um, and so I think it's, it's really contentious, and I understand why it's contentious, but I also think that um, it's incredibly offensive to leave things the way they are. Um, I know that if you go to Charleston, South Carolina, you walk in front of the Citadel and the statue of John C. Calhoun is still there. It's regularly defaced with graffiti, people throw eggs at it, all kinds of stuff, but they will not take that statue down. And yet, on the other side of downtown in the same city is a very new, beautiful memorial to who? Denmark Vesey, who led one of the largest attempted uprisings of slaves and and free blacks in South Carolina's history um, in 1819, 1820. 
And so I think it's absolutely, in some ways, kind of uh, head, sort of head-shaking and weird that you have Calhoun and Denmark Vesey being sort of honored in the same city. I would like to see Calhoun's statue come down. He was a secessionist. He had been for the last 30 years of his life before he died. But maybe it would be better to put them near each other and have a conversation about our history, as opposed to taking down one or both. Yeah, as as far as you can determine, um, when you hear these uh, <clears throat> young white males or men mm-hmm. uh, claim that this is a part of their heritage, mm-hmm. how what do you think they mean by that? I mean, what did they inherit, or or is right. it just is it just a a an excuse for them to to do what an excuse to hate? But I think that, unfortunately, many people's inheritance has been hatred. That's a good and I point. Think that, I, I think that that is, that there are people, not just in the South, let's be clear, across the country, who hold on to a history and a heritage of hate and a legacy of hate. They, um, are, they are terrified by the new world they see being created around them. They're incredibly upset about the fact that white supremacy and white privilege and white male privilege is under attack, that we're talking about, you know, egalitarianism, um, and, and that we're talking about a society where in another 20 to 30 years, the majority of the population will no longer be white, right? That they are, yeah. That they're not only looking around at the world at them and terrified of the fact that they're going to have to compete on a more equal playing level instead of just having things handed to them or not done to them because of their race and color. And they're also looking at the past and they're once again hankering for that lost cause. They've romanticized, right, this history of slavery and the Confederacy, and they've taken it upon themselves to say, gosh, if we could just go back to that time, then everything would be all right, right? We, we, if we just get rid of Muslims, if we get rid of, you know, free blacks, if we put women back into a certain position in the household and in politics and in the economy, if we put all gay and lesbian people back in the closet or subject them to electroshock therapy to, quote-unquote, fix them, if we do all of these things and put ourselves back in charge, not only will all be right with the world, but you know, things will, I mean, it'll just be more comfortable, right? I mean, when you have a group that has been used to leading things in this nation, at least, starting from colonization for 400 years, and they're now looking at a scenario where they're going to have to compete for leadership instead of simply being handed it, it's not really a surprise that they're going back to the period of American history that saw them with all the chips, all the power, all the wealth, all the cookies, all the toys got another question for you. We're going to go in a slightly different direction. After Charlottesville, one of your posts Mm -hmm. on Facebook, you mentioned how one, you were thankful to see the reaction of how a lot of the white folks were reacting because of Charlottesville, but on the other hand, what took you so long? How have some of the (laughs) comments that you've received from that statement, how have those been? They've been uh, varying across the board. What I find... You know, what I find interesting is that the people who generally tend to write in 
are those who had already been conscious, already had been woken up, right? When we talk about people being woke or conscious, they were already uh, white men and women who had been, um, you know, openly allies. Um, And so it's less sort of surprising to hear them say, well, you know, I don't, I don't, like for them, they, this wasn't a wake-up call. But my, my, my post was really to those people who were sort of newly speaking out. Maybe they had always felt this way inside, but they had been too scared to. Um, and what a number of people who wrote in said was that they thought that some people had sort of lulled themselves into a sort of false sense of complacency, like it's really not that bad, and that the sight of hundreds of young white men you know, throwing up the Sieg Heil, you know, Nazi salute and screaming, Jews will not replace us, and, and people actually being killed, you know, people being run over um, and murdered, was just so shocking that it took, it was so, it, it took people back decades or centuries and made them think, where are we living? Many of us have been living in that America for a long time. Many of us, you know, many people were slapped into consciousness after what happened to Trayvon Martin and certainly after what happened to Michael Brown and Ferguson. You know, um, people have been awake even longer than that. But yeah. I think that according to that Facebook post, some people were like, we never thought it would get this bad. And now we realize, especially one friend said something really interesting to me. She said, you know, I had always told myself that the younger generation were getting it right, that this was dying out. And then the sight of all of those primarily young men yeah. Marching across the University of Virginia campus, <clears throat> screaming those slurs, horrified her to no end. But there are still some. There, you can look on that post. There's, there's a couple of people who rode in and, um, you know, were pretty uh, vocally, defiantly proud of being Trump supporters and said that, you know, that uh, the 45th president is not a racist, that... Um, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. They didn't actually respond to my actual question, which was, why are you now vocal against racism? But instead, they chose to take this moment to, like, defend themselves and, and, the, and the president. Well, it, it's at some level, it seems like people are being emboldened on both sides of the argument. Yes. Yeah. Uh, you know, you take yeah. somebody uh, uh, like Dylan Roof, raise the consciousness uh, uh, yes. of everyone about the effects of the Confederate flag to the point where you even had Republicans uh, who were initially against removing the flag, all of a sudden they came out in favor of it. And then Charlottesville probably escalated or even uh, hastened the movement to remove Confederate statues uh, around the country. And, of course, the tragedy is that people lost their lives in both incidents. Yes. But, but still, it kind of put those issues on the map. That's what often has to happen, right, William? Yeah, that absolutely. You look at human history, not just American history, it seems that until people die, the majority sits in apathy, right? They're just silently compliant. They're, they're sticking their heads in the sand. They're hoping it goes away because they don't want to have to risk anything. They don't want to have to stand up and, and take a <clears throat> They don't want to have to say anything or stick out their necks. But then when, when people start losing their lives, and I mean, I hate to be cynical, but when white people start losing their lives, people start to really speak up. And I'm not saying that Charlottesville wouldn't have been horrifying regardless, but I do think that there's a, that there's a small role to, to, you know, that was played by the fact that Heidi Heyer, the woman who was killed, was white. Would as many people have been as horrified, as many white people have been as horrified and, and as willing to stand up and start demanding change 
if Heidi hadn't been white. And I mean, God bless her and her legacy. She was a true ally. Her mom is doing incredible work around the country speaking against hate and speaking in favor of tolerance and, and, and racial justice. I admire her greatly for doing this when she's just had to bury her daughter. But I have to wonder, given what I know about American history, when those civil rights workers went missing in Mississippi, would anybody have cared if it was just one civil rights worker you know, who was black as opposed to three of them, two of whom were white? Indeed. You know, I, I read recently, and I can't remember the state, that the Sons of the Confederacy were actually going to court to make sure that some of these monuments were not removed. It was from a university. Um, and I don't know if that's happened over other parts of the country. What do you think will happen with cases like that where they actually are going to court to keep some of these monuments in place? But that is exactly what happened in Louisville. There was a two-year battle that raged, and um, it was actually started by um, Dr. Ricky L. Jones, who's the chair of the Pan-African Studies Department at the University of Louisville. He actually initiated having that statue removed from the University of Louisville's campus, because as a black man and one of the few black faculty at UofL and as chair of the Black Studies Department, he was personally offended by having to drive past this statue every day. And it became a citywide movement, but there were people in opposition who actually went to court to have that, you know, to have injunctions put up, to have the statue remain where it was. There were people who were on city council. There were police officers, firefighters, veterans. I mean, it was, it was a mass, you know, it became a really, really big case with people on both sides, you know, arguing for or against moving the statue, ultimately it was seen as not being appropriate on U of L's land, and that it needed to be moved to a more appropriate place. Uh, either, you know, and as Dr. Jones put it when he was interviewed for uh, one last time about it, he said, "I don't care where it goes, someone's basement or a Confederate graveyard, but what I don't want is to see it on University of Louisville's property." Yeah, you know, some of the other. Uh states that have removed uh the statues uh there was one in texas i think uh uh florida had several cities that are removing uh confederate statues gainesville daytona beach peters st petersburg orlando but what i wanted to ask you was uh there they are discussing what to do about the the monument in stone mountain georgia is that mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's just up the road from where I am right now. Yeah, no, it might be why you were that why you're down there in Georgia to deal with this situation. <laughs> so, so do do you have an update on on that issue? I actually don't. Um, it's been pretty quiet around here uh-huh. about that particular. Like in Atlanta proper, people are heated about what's been going on around the country and and what happened in Charlottesville. I mean, since what happened in Charlottesville, in the space of eight days there were three massive protest marches in atlanta you know supporting the victims of charlottesville and standing up for racial solidarity and justice and what was amazing about those marches is that they were incredibly diverse um you know people of all different backgrounds and ages marching together i i was really it was actually very encouraging for me as a newcomer here to see that um, but sir, I don't. I haven't actually heard very much in the news at all about what's happening at Stone Mountain. What I've been hearing much more about is what's been happening in Memphis over the Nathan Bedford Forest Park and statue. Mm-hmm. You know what's that? That has been a really interesting situation because the the people who wanted that park renamed and the statue taken down won the case. 
the city agreed to rename the park and remove that statue. They were on board in favor after years of cases and arguments and whatnot. And after they made that decision, do you know that the state of Tennessee came in and said, you can't do that, it's illegal, you have to leave it the way it is? Which was that the end of it? The state overruled the, uh, uh, the municipal government of, of Memphis and said you have to keep the park and the statue the way it is. So is, is that so, the end of the situation? Well, it's not the end of the decision. People are continuing to fight it, but they're going to have to literally restart and refile. And it's, it's incredibly lengthy and time-consuming, right? It's also expensive. And what people, what, what, hope, what people hope is, oh, well, if we say no to you often enough, you'll just get discouraged and shut up and go away. And what we have to make absolutely clear is that we will not shut up and that we will not go away. Because that is, that is the danger, that people will just become tired, they'll become apathetic, they'll go back to worrying more about, you know, whatever. The, you know, the, the next football game on TV, so don't get me started on the NFL right now. But <laughs> That's another show. Right? Yes, it is. Yeah, yeah you know, right. The American public, we know, sadly, has, the, has a very short and limited attention span. And so it is very important to those of us who are on the side of right in this to not let this go. You know, one, like, thing, that, one thing that I've noticed uh, about, especially in Charlottesville, in past years, they put hoods on. They're so emboldened now. They're walking down the streets with their faces shown, not caring who knows. Exactly right. And when people say to me, why have they all of a sudden felt that they can do this? I look at them and say, they've been emboldened because they believe that they have a firm supporter in the White House. When you have a president who... who pardons a racist sheriff from Arizona (laughs) a week after Charlottesville, right? Arpeo has now, um, you know, been been pardoned. When you have a president who talks about how removing Confederate monuments and, you know, is, is erasing our history, when you have a president who puts people like open avowed racists, like Steve Bannon, who's now gone, but, you know, who he, when he hires people like that to be in his inner council, his personal confidential advisors, to sit, and to be one of his, you know, trusted right hands, of course you're going to embolden people around the country who have already felt this way. They felt that they suffered for eight years under the horrible, terrible dictatorship of, you know, the Obama presidency, and now they have one of their own in the White House who's going to give them a pass if they behave this way, who's not going to come down on them, who's not going to arrest them, who has put a man in charge of the Department of Justice who is rolling back all of the protections on civil rights and saying that civil rights infractions will no longer be pursued That's by the Department right. of Justice. That's right. Of course these people are being emboldened. It's Candyland to them. They look around and say, hey, our time has come. Okay, well, uh, Amrita... We're getting the uh, high sign from uh, our producer here, so we are out of time. But in just a few words, uh, can do you want to leave us with anything? I would just say to be very careful to not think that because you live in a place like Bloomington <coughs> that you don't need to worry. 
every every city, every town in America has been infected by white supremacy, white privilege, and racism. That is that is one of the legacies of our common history. We must be very on guard, very aware, and you know, very vigilant to make sure that we are unearthing, unrooting, and disposing of any any root, any shred, any branch of, of white privilege or white supremacy or racism that exists in our communities. Do not tell yourself that you live in a liberal oasis in a little blue dot in a big red sea, because there are an awful lot of big red seas, and even within blue communities, there are red people. And Rita, we want to really thank you, and uh, it was great to talk to you. We hope to see you soon. Uh, we want to thank Bring It On contributor and anchor Amrita Myers, who is a Ruth N. Hall's associate professor in the IU Department of History and Gender Studies, to share her perspective on history and heated debates surrounding the Confederate monuments. Bring It On has an open submission policy, so if you have any ideas for this program, we would like to hear them. Send your emails directly to our volunteer staff. The address is bringiton at wfhb.org. We want to make sure we share any and everything affecting the African-American community with our listening audience in Bloomington and beyond. That email address, once again, bring it on at wfhb.org. Support for WFHB comes from Limestone Post, an online culture and lifestyle magazine for Bloomington and beyond. Explore articles, photo essays, and videos on the arts, outdoors, local history, community events, and all the topics that make Bloomington such a great place to live. Limestone Post, Writers with a Voice, Photographers with a Vision. Online at limestonepostmagazine.com. The Bloomington Garlic and Community Art Fair is an all-ages sensory celebration spanning Saturday and Sunday of Labor Day weekend, September 2nd and 3rd, rain or shine, starting at 11 a.m. Located at the Waldron Hill Buskirk Park on South Washington Street in Bloomington. Garlic Fest features food, live music, art, yoga, and local beer. For more details, visit bloomingtongarlicfestival.org.
heard Spirit in the Sky, sung by the Blind Boys of Alabama. Originally written and recorded by Norris Greenbaum in 1969, this single became a gold record selling two million copies from 1969 to 1970. The Blind Boys released their rendition of the Atom Bomb CD project in 2005. This is Bring It On, the People's Forum for Black Culture in South Central Indiana and beyond. Are you a tweeter? If so, you're invited to follow the WFHB News Twitter account. It's a great way to get breaking news and updates on what's going on behind the scenes and on the air with WFHB News. Simply go to Twitter.com and search for WFHB News, or you can always visit our news website at WFHB.org news. To keep up with local news and find out what's happening behind the scenes at WFHB, you're invited to like the WFHB Facebook page. Go to Facebook.com and search for WFHB. Or you can always visit the WFHB News website at WFHB.org news. Bring It On is Indiana's only public affairs program dedicated to the African American community. Here on WFHB 91.3 FM and live on the web at WFHB.org. For Bring It On, I'm William Hosea. And I'm Cornelius Wright. So at the top of the hour, we share that we have invited Joyce Rogers, Vice President for Development and External Relations for IU's Diversity, Equity, and Multicultural Affairs, onto the show to educate our listeners to Black Philanthropy Month. Joyce joins us on the phone. Joyce, are you there? I'm here. Thank you. Awesome. Oh, awesome. You scared us for a minute. <laughs> and welcome to Bring It On. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So, Joyce, this is something that uh, probably many of us were not aware of, Black Philanthropy Month. Your two co-hosts, for sure. Yeah. <laughs> so can you go ahead and give us a little background on that and bring us up to date on it, please? Well, it's a movement that started uh, in the 2011-2012, um, and the focus was to focus on blacks and helping us to understand our role when it comes to philanthropy. Uh, not only our role, the fact that we, we have always had a role in black philanthropy. And to get us to focus on our, you know, our talents and our treasures, you know, and not for us to dwell on the fact that uh, what many of us believe, that you've got to have a whole lot of money and be able to have a whole lot of checks uh, to be able to give. Uh, that couldn't be further from the truth. And so it's just a movement across the country 
to to motivate and to mobilize blacks around black giving in whatever capacity that you're able to do so. You know, one thing that we were talking before the segment is that it seems in the black community, we've always given from the church to our communities, this and that. We may not have much, but we've always given. And I think a lot of times when people think of philanthropy, they think you have to have millions of dollars or it's your estate or it's this or that. Explain to our listening audience how they can give, where they can give, and just the whole background behind giving in philanthropy, especially in the black community. Well, Black Philanthropy Month, Month, what it really focuses on is everybody giving in whatever capacity, whatever way is comfortable for you, but to have a focus on black giving uh, so that we can get away from the notion that uh, where we've always been stereotyped as always having a handout and not having a hand in, while we know that a lot of times we do have a hand in because of the way that we typically do give uh, the ways that you just described, you know, to family and friends, uh, to our churches, and to causes. I mean, when you think about civil rights movements and other movements uh, that have benefited the black community, we have been the ones that have, have stepped up to give. But we want to continue to giving, and we want to continue to be able to, to highlight and showcase the fact that we do give. So um, I read your article, uh, Black Philanthropy Month, Why Embrace It? And, and you tend to, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, you redefine um, somewhat the definition of philanthropy. I think, uh, just to borrow a couple of words, you, you describe it as uh, giving time, talent, and treasure. That's exactly right. And so, you know, I'm thinking to myself, uh, Cornelius, if, uh, if you talk about giving time and talent, that really makes us a couple of phil- philanthropic uh, kind of guys, huh? Absolutely. That's exactly right. You know, the the world of philanthropy is about giving of whatever resources that you have available to to make a change. Uh, but we oftentimes, oftentimes because of the way that we typically give, we don't view ourselves as philanthropists. Right. Uh, when in fact, you know, most of the time we really are. But the other part of that is focusing and strategizing the way that we do give so that we could have an impact within our community on issues uh, around uh, those issues that affect uh, blacks in the black community. You said that this Black Philanthropy Month is a movement. Exactly, um, or can you give us some idea how vast or how how widespread is it? Um, Do you have uh, corporations or sponsors uh, there are some corporations. There are some sponsors. Uh, this is the first time that I think that here locally in Indiana that I've seen, uh, especially the university, to uh, focus on it the way that we have. Uh, so I think that the more and more those of us who learn about it and begin to embrace it, the more and more it's, it's going to be widespread. Widespread, and and if you remember the article, one of the things that I stress in the article is that it's that whole notion about Black History Month. Even though we have Black Philanthropy Month, uh, this is a movement, but it, it in no way means that it should only happen in the month of August. We sh- this is a way to motivate 
all of us at the same time around this issue uh, to help inspire us to give in some capacity continuously all the time and to strategize, you know, and hopefully to be able to have a whole nother level of impact within our own community. You know, one of the things that, that I always think about when we give, it seems that there's never a cause for black causes. And, and as I was sitting here talking, we I, take the churches, for instance. How many black churches in this country do we have? Did we crawl to the banks asking for a loan for this, for that? Why don't we put together our own bank where we're giving ourselves loans, where we're giving ourselves uh, student loans, housing loans, business loans, etc.? What's it going to take for us to give to ourselves? Well, I think that, you know, as a part of this movement, there's all sorts of uh, giving circles that, uh, you know, giving circles are really catching on uh, in a huge way, uh, not just around black philanthropy, uh, a lot of women's groups and other uh, demographics. But it, at first you've got to strategize. And you got to coordinate and collaborate when it comes to your giving. Um, and that's what Black Philanthropy Month is all about, is helping us to seek that understanding that we need uh, to, to embrace the ideology of giving, uh, but also to embrace the fact that you got to bring others along with you, you know, your friends, your families, your colleagues, and help them to understand how important it is uh, and how impactful black giving can really be, uh, because we've never really focused our giving in this manner before. Uh, not where it's documented. You know, I've mentioned causes before, like the civil rights causes. We know that we spent a lot of, you know, time, talent, and treasures uh, to be able to uh, fight a lot of the issues that we had to fight uh, around civil rights, especially back in the 60s. Um, and we still do so today, and that is that's strategizing, and if we don't strategize and we don't strategize with each other, we're going to stay behind in a lot of areas where we could really gain uh, in a lot of ways if we would, you know, uh, talk about our giving and coordinate our giving around spe- specific issues and needs. You know, to go back to the question that Cornelius just asked, uh, some churches already do that. There are probably very few of them, but some already do. I know of a couple uh that when I was on the East Coast, they have uh, uh, formed their own credit unions and they give loans to their parishioners, uh, college loans uh, and grants to the students. And then, Joyce, you mentioned that we have to strategize. And I think I understand what you mean. Part of that probably includes uh, training people up. With If you talk about churches, you have to train people up to make that happen. Because there are, and and I don't mean to criticize pastors, but there's a lot of them that don't think that way. Right. And so you, you have to train them up and kind of get people in that mindset to, uh, to make this happen. But another question that I wanted to ask you, are there any events planned uh, locally or elsewhere in the country to highlight uh, Black Philanthropy Month? And if so, what types of events, well, if, if you know of any? Our- um, there's all sorts of lectures, uh, networking events, uh, types of reading, different areas do different things, and I'm really hoping uh, that this will catch on. And I kind of feel like it will because I've gotten a lot of calls since that article um, and since Indiana University, not just Indiana University, 
on the Bloomington campus, but the Lilly School of Philanthropy also did some things. Uh, a uh, colleague by the name of Tyrone Freeman, I know that he did some things too. So I think that here in Indy, um, when I say Indy, I mean Indiana, uh, that we this is new for us to embrace in a widespread way, but, but I'm definitely sure it's going to continue to grow. And you're going to hear a lot about some of the specific es- uh, efforts uh, with Indiana University, because if we're, we can be successful with the whole notion of black philanthropy, just think what, the, what that can do in regards to some of our other uh, demographic groups when it comes to diversity and culture, uh, not just for the city, but for our communities, our state, and for our country. Our country is going through an awful lot right now. Uh, that's a whole nother show. Uh, but this is an area of impact where we can come together and focus. You know, I'm looking at a very impressive folder from the office of DEMA um, that has a lot of information about black philanthropy. For our listening audience, for those that want to get more involved, how can they contact you, the university or programs here locally? Um, you can go directly to the OVP DEMA uh, website. You can always, and I'm going to give my email address because I'm always interested in talking to and hearing from people that's interested in philanthropy. That is my focus within the university uh, is diversity in giving. Um, I don't know that we've had a person uh, on the campus on the campuses before that has had that specific focus. Um, and my email address is j-o-y-c-r-o-g-e at indiana.edu. Um, and I'd like to hear some of the thoughts because we do want to motivate uh, all of ourselves and all of our friends and have some impact when it comes to philanthropy and solving some of our own issues. Uh, our students, our current students, how are they embracing this program and um you know, that they're the younger generation, so I'm, I'd really be interested to see how what their thoughts are on giving, because especially since they're in that position to where they don't have much to give right now. And they don't have much to give. But time and effort. Some of the, uh, well, definitely time and effort in helping, you know, what we want to do is help students to understand that, you know, giving of your time is still giving. Um, and statistics show that people that give uh, at an early age, give whatever amount that they can give they continue to to give throughout their lifetime so as their circumstances change their giving capacity change um, so we want to inspire students to give in whatever ways that they can give and one of the long-term goals of being able to really bring some focus to black philanthropy black philanthropy month is coming up with some ways where students can be more involved um, in the process so, Joyce, um, how long have you been uh, working on this whole philanthropy movement, and and what kind of progress do you see so far? Uh, well, I've been at Indiana University for about three and a half years, and my primary focus has been diversity uh, in philanthropy. And is it moving as fast as I would like for it to move? Uh, of course, absolutely not. But are we, you know, making some gains as far as uh, participation, as far as actual giving levels, as far as involvement? Absolutely. 
is there a lot more work to be done with engaging our alumni, with engaging some of our programs? You know, we have a lot of programs, not just on the Bloomington campus, but across uh, the university. And we have to think about the fact that there's not a black hole of resources. You know, when you get scholarships or if you're in, you know, one of the group's programs, and you've got mentees, you know, and, and all sorts of things, you know, things that have to be paid for. There's not a black hole of resources of where those dollars come from to provide that support. And so what we want to do is reach back and make sure that those that come behind us have the opportunity to, to receive not just that, le- that same level of support, but even more support going forward. And when any churches or charitable organizations uh, come to you and say, we want to get on board with this or we want to start our program, how do you uh, help to get them started? Well, so for churches, we've not had any churches that have come to us and say that we want to get on board, but we are very willing to sit down and have a conversation and talk about uh, philanthropy and black philanthropy and why it's important uh, and why we need to focus on it and why we need to have to start at an early age. You know, a lot of times in our homes, uh, me personally, my dad was a minister, and so I learned about tithing at a very early age. But I learned about giving beyond that, and that's what we want to talk about. We want to talk about, you know, all the different ways of giving, uh, not just in our church. And church is important. I just told you my dad was a minister, so believe me, church is absolutely important. But, you know, what about that food bank down the street? Uh, You know, what about the hospitals? Uh, What about all the other uh, ways that we can volunteer our time? And when we do have that extra dollar, what about dropping it in that container? You know, and then when that extra dollar becomes an extra $10, you know, writing that check or or going to PayPal, however you want to give, we've got to think about, you know, being very, very, very strategic in, in, in where we give and how we give. Now, that's an interesting point. The university has a huge resource when you think about the Neil Marshall Club, which our producer Clarence Boone, he handles over at the Alumni Association. We've got a large list of black alumni here at Indiana University. Have you used any of those resources or databases to try to contact our alums to get a strategic plan uh, for giving? And not only IU, but other universities across the country. And that's really what other universities do. Um, really, you know, your, your first line of attack is really with your alumni. I'm an alum. And so I remember somebody saying to me one time, um, I graduated from the law school, and someone said to me uh, one time, you're involved with all these organizations. How much are you giving to the law school at that time? If I, I don't even think it was on my radar. And they looked at me and said, but all of your opportunities have came to you because of that degree from Indiana University, from law school. So that's the message that we want to send, and that's the message that we want to be able to utilize to engage other people. I just talked to somebody uh, who was an alum but also was a staff person at Indiana University, and he looked at me and he said, he said, you know, he said, everything wasn't perfect for me when I was at Indiana University, but everything is never perfect anywhere. He said, but all the good things that's happening for me in my life, it is because of my time uh, that I spent there getting my degree, uh, that I'm able to do some of the things that I do. So it really is about engaging and having that conversation uh, and making it, putting it top of mind for folks when they think about their giving. 
And another group that really just came to mind and who we interview often, have you contacted the Black Caucus in Indianapolis? No, we have not contacted the Black Caucus, but that's an excellent idea. We have engaged some specific members, uh, and part of that is because a lot of times it really does start with alumni, and a lot of people have allegiances to their own universities, which is fine, you know, because we, you know, it's not just about people giving to the organization uh, where you're at and where you're charged with getting people to support. We still want our people to give wherever it is comfortable for them, for them to give and where they think that they can make the impact, because we're every place. Uh, and so we want our giving uh, to represent where we're at. Time or money. <laughs> um, where would you like to see the movement in, say, five to ten years? Ultimately, how would you like to see it grow and, and be at, at its uh, maximum potential? Well, and I'm going to focus my answer that, to that question on Indiana University. I would like to see more of our alumni uh, just giving something. I'm not saying writing millions of dollars check, but just giving something, uh, not just time, uh, but also talent and treasures. Talent is important for our students. Treasures are important for our students. You know, our students want to know, you know, what did you do uh, to be successful in your life? So, you know, the talent absolutely is important. So I would just like to see our numbers grow with the number of alumni that's giving back to the university um, in volunteering, uh, giving, in all sorts of ways. Did we already talk about the uh, level of black philanthropy? Uh, I can't remember because I was reading in your article that African Americans give a larger share of the income to charities than any other group. Right. That, that was a surprise. Yes. That particular study, I think, uh, noted uh, that African Americans give approximately 25% more of their disposable income. Uh, you know, we're not in a position where our disposable income oftentimes is not as much as the majority. But that's not what we're saying here. What we're saying here right. is even though we may have less, oftentimes we're giving 25% more. Uh, the problem is is that the way that we give, because typically we give what funders call um, in a more informal way, meaning that if you're giving to your family and friends, really nobody knows that but you and your family and friends. If you're giving to causes, unless it's a documented cause, nobody really knows that you're giving to that cause. Uh, I think we're getting better with documenting when we give to the church, but think about it for, you know, decades and decades, we didn't even document what we gave to the church. We know we have these big, beautiful buildings, and we do a whole lot of things in our churches, but we really didn't document, you know, what we gave and how we gave, and so... What we're forced to do now is that we need to think about, uh, if we want to have impact, we need to think about how to be able to meet our philanthropic, philanthropic goals, uh, but meet those goals in a formal way so that the rest of the world know that we're making, you know, more than our fair share of the impact when it comes to giving. Well, Joyce, we've run out of time, but I really want to thank you for uh, this informative uh, half hour. And I would like to say that we'd like to invite you back late July so that we can get on board earlier to uh, make sure that we have this month covered next month or next That'd year. That's great. We'd love to do that. Excellent. 
Again, we want to thank Joyce Rogers, Vice President for Development and External Relations for IU Diversity, Equity, and Multicultural Affairs for coming to raise awareness of Black Philanthropy Month. If you have an event that you want us to know about and if you have an opinion of current black issues, send your comments to bringiton at wfhb.org. For Bring It On, I'm William Hosea. And I'm Cornelius Wright. You're listening to Bring It On, Indiana's only public affairs program dedicated to the African-American community. Here on WFHB, 91.3 on your radio and live on the web at wfhb.org. We would like to thank Bring It On contributor and anchor Amrita Myers, who is a Ruth N. Hall's associate professor in the IU Departments of History and Gender Studies for sharing her perspective on history and heated debates surrounding the Confederate monuments. Our show's executive producer is Clarence Boone, with help from WFHB News Department Director Wes Martin. Our board engineer team is Jim Thrasher and Kirsten Payton. Our original theme music was created by Jamil Effiam, with additional background tracks by David Baker. For WFHB, I'm Cornelius Wright. I'm William Hosea. Our thoughts and prayers go out to those in the path of Hurricane Harvey. We hope the rains will soon cease and the waters abate. We'll continue to monitor the federal government's response to this in the days to come. As always, tune in next Monday, September 4th at 6 p.m. for another exciting broadcast on Bring It On, right here on your community radio station, WFHB. You've been listening to Bring It On, a volunteer-powered production of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana. Bring It On is your forum for open dialogue on the people, issues, and events affecting the African-American community in South Central Indiana and beyond. Send your comments, suggestions, and story ideas directly to the Bring It On staff. The email address is bringit at wfhb.org. That's bringit at wfhb.org.